Welcome, guys and gals, to the Man Talks podcast. I'm Connor Beaton, the host and founder of Man Talks. This podcast brings together the best thought leaders, teachers, and extraordinary individuals to teach and mentor you on how to be a top performer in life, love, and business. Imagine having experienced mentors with decades of wisdom delivered right to your ears. We talk about purpose, legacy, influence, love, sex, success, and so much more. Don't forget to leave us a review, subscribe, and join the thousands of other changemakers in our community on Facebook or go to www.mantalks.com for more podcasts, blogs, and videos. So today I have joining with me a very special guest and we are going to dive into something that we haven't talked too, too much about on this podcast so far. And that is relationships, dating, and a little bit of sex and intimacy. So uh, this is going to be fantastic. Um, With me today, I have Dr. Alexandra Solomon. She's a licensed clinical psychologist at the Family Institute in Northwestern University, clinical assistant professor in the Department of Psychology at Northwestern, and the author of a book called Loving Bravely, 20 Lessons of Self-Discovery to Help You Get the Love You Want. She's received her PhD in counseling psychology and is a graduate certificate in gender studies from Northwestern. And in addition to teaching and training marriage and family therapy graduate students, uh, she also teaches internationally renowned undergraduate course, Building Loving and Lasting Relationships, Marriage 101. So she might know what she's talking about a little bit in and around the relationships, dating and intimacy uh, area. Um, Dr. Solomon has also been featured on so many different platforms like the Oprah Winfrey Network, the CBC, um, CBS, The Atlantic, the NPR, Huffington Post. So she, she's been everywhere. Uh, she's got some really, really great insight. And today we're going to talk about a couple of things. We're going to f- start off by talking about dating. And if you're single, you know how to show up, how to attract the type of person that you're ultimately looking for. Uh, and then we're going to get into a little bit more around communication and how to maintain a relationship. So whether you're dating somebody and it's gotten a little bit more serious or whether you're married, uh, whatever that looks like, we're going to talk about that. And then we're going to dive into sex and intimacy. And we're going to talk about how to deepen the intimate connection that you have with your partner, what that looks like, and how to maintain that long term. Uh, so this is chock full of incredible, incredible insight. You might want to take notes. Um, I know I definitely did. She's got a lot of resources and a lot of wisdom in this area. So hold on tight because we are in for a great conversation about relationships, love, intimacy, and so much more. All right. So Dr. Solomon, I'm excited to have you on the podcast because you know, you specialize in relationships and in marriage and and in family and in all these juicy details that we uh, that we haven't explored too much, honestly, uh, on the Man Talks podcast yet. And we've had a lot of people reach out and ask for us to talk a little bit more about relationships because obviously relationships are a hot topic. They're they're very popular. I'm going to start off today like we normally start off, which is tell us an interesting story about yourself or a defining moment that has made you who you are today. Yeah, absolutely. 
Thank you. Well, I'm so excited to be here. I, um, I think really highly of you and of the work that you do. So I'm more than happy to, uh, to, to meet up with you in this way. I think it's great. Yeah. So I, my entire uh, professional life is really, like you were saying, being a student of love and studying all of the kind of ups and downs and ins and outs of our romantic relationships, which definitely play a huge part in who we are and how we feel about ourselves. You know, study after study has shown that um, satisfaction in our romantic lives outweighs, is a bigger piece of the pie in terms of how we feel about our lives overall, even a bigger piece of the pie than health, wealth, and career happiness. So I, I just, I think it's great that I you know, I, be, I became a student of love over 20 years ago, and I still feel like every day I'm a student, like learning more. And my clients teach me, my students teach me, my husband teaches me. And I think to me, a defining moment was I had, you know, as a little girl, from the, as long ago as I can remember, I was going to be a doctor. I was going to be a pediatrician. And to me, college was simply a means to an end of getting to medical school and meeting that goal that I had really constructed my whole identity around. That was all fine and good until I sat in my first gender studies class as a um, second year college student. And my mind was blown about just looking at how we construct our sense of self around gender, what happens with gender at the level of uh, politics and the level of community. Um, And I became so fascinated in studying how people relate to each other around gender and and around race and sexuality. And that really knocked me off course and um, sent me towards the direction of studying psychology and relationships with a pretty heavy gender lens these last you know, 20 plus years. So that was a real defining moment of feeling like I thought I was on path A and now I'm, I'm taking a turn and heading on this different path. And I, um, I really haven't looked back. Nice. Nice. It's a great story. I think a lot of people can probably relate with that. You know, like we usually go into college or university with a specific path in mind, or, you know, even before college and university, we have this idea of what we think we're going to be doing. And then, you know, we start heading down that path and realize that maybe it's not the path for us. or we find something that is much more aligned with what we want to be doing. So Mm -hmm. that's fantastic. It's yeah. Unsettling, unsettling and exciting, but yeah. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, exactly. Um, so, so in your work with, with what you do, cause you work a lot with, do you, do you work more with couples or, or with, with, with individuals or is it like a healthy mix, like mix of both? It's, it definitely leans more towards working with couples. Um, but I, mm. I do have, um, individual men and individual women that I work with, but it's almost always on relational issues as well. Even if there's only one of them in the room, the relationship stuff is always in the room with us, but I see lots and lots of couples every week too. Awesome. Awesome. Okay. So let's, let's deal with the, let's deal with the single people first and then we'll jump into the, into the couples. Does that sound fair? Sounds great. Okay, cool. So, you know, with people that are single and are looking to date and are out there, you know, wanting to enter into a relationship, what are some of the things that you see or have seen that are usually a either preventing them from getting into a relationship uh, and, and B, what are some things that they can do to sort of prep themselves to enter into a relationship in the most sort of, I guess, powerful way possible? Mm-hmm. I think it's a great question and one that we as a culture don't take enough time to really think about and talk about. You know, I think there's an expectation that people will find love and create long-term partnerships, but we have very little conversation about what does the self-work look like that lays the foundation for a healthy romantic relationship. One of the one of my favorite things I do in my job is teach an undergraduate class at Northwestern University called Building Loving and Lasting Relationships, Marriage 101. 
And we spend some time talking about relationship stuff, conflict and you know, sexual, sexual relationships over the long term. But the heart of the class is helping our students really come to understand who they are as individuals, the stories they learned about love in their families. You know, kids, as kids, we are like little students, you know, we're, we're watching how our parents interact or don't interact. We're taking in all kinds of messages from TV and movies about um, who men are in relationship, who women are in relationship. And we internalize all these stories. But unless we have a way of becoming conscious about the stories we've internalized, we're real reactive when we're looking for love. And so we're either looking for a partner who will kind of help, um, it's not, it's not always conscious, but who will recreate dynamics from our childhood, giving us a chance to rework them. All kinds of stuff is stirring within us, oftentimes outside of our awareness. So to me, the most powerful thing a single person can do is develop a continuing and ongoing commitment to the study of self, like a curious and compassionate relationship to themselves. And I don't, that's very different than selfishness, right? It's a it's really valuing self-reflection in the work of the self. And that, to me, sets the most powerful foundation for a relationship. And I think it's harder than ever and more important than ever now that we are loving in this digital age, you know, where, where um, it's quite normal and normative to look for love on our phones, swiping left and right. And to me, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But those kinds of tools are so externalizing, right? Like my only job is to look for somebody on my phone. And I think if if we're not real careful and mindful about how we do that, it's so easy to miss the chance to kind of focus on ourselves. Okay, what do I want? How am I showing up for this first date? What's going on inside of me? How am I, what's the conversation like inside of my head? Because it's so easy to get focused on the person's, the person on our screen. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's one of those things where, the self-reflection piece allows you to bring like your strengths to the table in, in dates and what you are curious about and what you enjoy. And it also allows you to ask maybe not, not the right questions, but it ask, allows you to ask more mm, engaging questions. So the other person feels like they're being taken and interested. Is that, does that sound about right? Absolutely. Absolutely. There's um, I love this idea that kind of solitude and intimacy are uh, inextricably bound to each other. So solitude, kind of like my own daydreaming, what I think about when I'm driving to work, like all the kind of stuff that goes on inside my head, my relationship with me sets the foundation for intimacy. The degree to which I have a rich interior world is the degree to which, yeah, I can show up on a date and ask curious questions and kind of share parts of myself and and be engaging. Absolutely. Nice. Nice. Okay. And so what are some of the barriers that you see preventing you know, people that are, that are looking to date, you know, often like some of the things that people usually struggle with, because I know like, you know, I've got a lot of single guy friends who are looking to get into relationship and they seem to have like, you know, some of them seem to have a very common, uh, struggle, you know, when they're looking to get in a relationship. And then, you know, from the feminine side there, you know, women seem to have a, a completely different sort of like subset of things that they, almost like not need to overcome, but that they deal with when they're trying to get into a relationship. And so I'm just curious as if you've seen any commonalities between men and women of, you know, when they're looking for a relationship, those, those pieces that are, that are maybe preventing them or holding them back or, or that are barriers for them. Yeah. 
Well, one that comes to my mind immediately that I I think is definitely reflective of kind of where we are as a culture and our relationship with our technology. I just saw this happen yesterday. I was hanging out with my um, my brother and a bunch of his friends, and they're all sort of like late 20s, early 30s. And one of them was um, is starting a new relationship, like just really early on a new relationship. And the rest of the guys were like, oh, show us a picture of her. And so he pulls out his phone, of course, and shows a photo and kind of watching this all shake out and watching them react to the photo and watching him watch their reaction to the photo. And I think this is very common for men and women that I think in part, it reflects the fact that people are getting married later these days than any generation before. So there's a long stretch of time where people kind of transition out of their family's home and have really tight, rich networks of friendships, which I think, you know, I think it's beautiful and, and really a wonderful chapter in a lot of people's lives. It does mean that the onus is on the single person to make sure there's a real healthy boundary between the self and the friend group when it comes to romantic relationships. Because I don't know if this young guy, if this, if this, you know, guy who's, who's in this young relationship, this new relationship, I don't know the degree to which he really needs the guy's feedback on this new partner of his based on one photo of her, you know? So I was just kind of aware of what, what will he take away now based on the feedback that they gave him, either the, you know, the mix of approval, disapproval, questions, judgments, and how will that shape him as he's experiencing this new relationship. So I think one of the barriers for men and women can be just too fluid of a boundary between you and your group of friends around the impressions that you're forming in your new relationship. I think it's so important and hard to hard enough to figure out, okay, how do I feel in this person's presence? What do I what, what do I feel like is the potential of this relationship? That's a hard enough conversation to have just the, with the self, much less than to have the weigh-in of all of the friends around you, kind of like, she looks like she's to this, or she looks like she's to this. It's too much noise. You know, I think it makes it even harder than to hear your own deep truth about what the potential is here. Yeah, it's interesting. Like you, you say that, and I, you know, I've definitely seen that, uh, you know, within some of the guys that that I've spent time with in the past and in parts of my friend circles in the past. And, you know, I think a, a lot of men and women are looking for some sort of like social acceptance, but also, you know, with guys, it's almost like this wanting validation or, or wanting to like show off a little bit, you know, it's almost like when they buy the, the new car or when we like, you know, win an award or something like that, like we're, we're prone to just want to like put that out there. It's like that, you know, egotistical part of us. that's like, ah, look, look what I got, right. Mm -hmm. You know, look what I've, look what I've conquered or captured. And as, and as much as like that might sound, you know, a little bit harsh, it's, it's totally true. It's like that part of us that's just kind of like wanting to show off to our buddies, Mm -hmm. but we're showing off from a space of wanting to gain their social acceptance and and make sure that they're all going to be okay with, you know, how our partner looks. So it's, that's, that's an interesting catch. What, any other, any other things that you see, maybe like men specifically struggle with when they're trying to enter into a relationship? Because I think one of the things that I've started to see over the past couple of years of, of working with guys is, you know, there's a lot of sometimes altering of who they are to create this illusion of a, of a bigger potential of who they could be. And so it's almost like they're putting forward when they're dating, they're, they're embellishing some things, whether it's through their work or how much money they make. And sort of creating this identity for themselves um, that's maybe a little bit shinier and bigger than than who they actually are, and and so it's kind of like instead of underselling and, and over delivering, they're kind of like 
overselling and then struggling to deliver on what they've what they've sold the person on the other side of the table so um any other any other sort of like insights that that men should watch out for well i think just being conscious of that whole piece of what we as a culture do collectively, I mean, men and women both participate in this, of um, creating a, a space where where men are set up to fall into that over-promising over kind of trap. I think just being, the degree to which men can be aware of that sort of trap of masculinity is so important and so and so helpful. I think men and women both, you know, collude around it. I remember hearing the story of a psychologist, a female psychologist, born female, who spent a year living as a man, not because she was transgender, but she was doing it as a piece of her research. So she lived as a man for a year and, and had that experience and then kind of came, came back to her female life and wrote about the experience. And what she found um, most powerfully, a fear of being, of not measuring up, of being found out and not being found out as a woman passing as a man, but not, but this fear of like sort of living in the male world of sort of not feeling like you measure up, that you're not enough and figuring in every situation, you know, assessing, am I, am I a top dog or bottom dog in this situation? Like who's got more power? Who's got more of this? Who's got more of this? And so I think in the dating world, that pressure on men is so intense. So the degree to which a man can be compassionate with his, himself around the truth of who he is, the truth of his income and his um, career path and, and stand in his truth without shame, that's very powerful. And I think it's very attractive to a potential mate, you know, to be, this is, this is where I am in my life and here's what I'm aspiring to. And here's the direction I'm, I'm going, but this is who I am. And this is where I am right now. And that's really hard to do. I think it is a um, prerequisite for a healthy relationship is to be able to stand in your story in truth, mm. because that, that's such a dynamic in an ongoing um, intimate relationship is the degree to which we can be vulnerable and authentic and say, this is my truth right now. And I I'm not going to apologize for it. And I'm, this is what I'm working with. You know, I, that's such a um, important quality in the couples that I work with, the men who can show up in my therapy office and speak from a place of truth and integrity and and not, I don't think we ever like get beyond our ego, but um, we commit to kind of managing our ego. So men who can say, you know, one part of me wants to da 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 da, but my truth is over here. And so this is this is how I'm going to talk to you and show up for you. Um, that's such a such an important quality in a relationship. And um, so I think working on that in the dating world is important. Yeah, I mean that's that's huge. And I think what you're talking about. Um, we know what really resonated with me uh, about what you just said is that I feel like you just described healthy confidence, you know, like, I feel like you just outlined what it takes for, for a guy to really have a sense of healthy confidence, to be able to say, you know, like there's, there's lots of guys who, who I know that are maybe shorter and date taller women or don't have, you know, a job that, that gives them as much money and they're, they're dating, you know, a, a partner who makes quite a bit more money than them. Um, that's a dynamic that I saw between my dad and my stepmom because he had a, you know, he made, he still made good money, but she made a lot of money, you know? And, and so seeing some of those dynamics and, and one of the biggest things, you know, a lot of men are confronted with that but the the sort of like essence of, of confidence is just owning where you're actually at and and not being apologetic for it because there's certain things that you just can't do anything about right like <laughs> yeah. and yeah. and and seeing them as a weakness 
um, really hinders the connection. So I think that's great advice. Um, before we move on to the couple side of things, I am so curious to get your insight on how you think things like Tinder and Plenty of Fish and all these online, you know, bumbles and whatnot are are impacting. And I didn't even think I was going to ask this question. I didn't even come <laughs> to me until just now. But but you know, how do you think that those are impacting the the dynamics between men and women? And you know, what's do you recommend it? Do you think that 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 people should should use those platforms, you know, especially if they're looking to get into an actual long-term relationship or right. what's your, what's your take on that? Yeah. I, I mean, this, this world has changed so quickly that I think that everyone, I think all of the clinicians that I know who are working with people who are in the dating world, I mean, our heads are spinning about how do we um, support people using these tools in a really healthy, really mindful, really conscious kind of a way. So, you know, I think the tool itself is sort of neither here nor there, right? It is whatever we make it out to be. And so if nothing, I think in the best of scenarios, what the tools do, what the online tools do is really force our evolution and our consciousness about who do we want to be as intimate partners. Because if we if we use these tools mindlessly, like swiping while we're in line at Trader Joe's, you know, you could easily swipe through, right? 20, 30, 40 potential partners while you're in line at Trader Joe's. If we use them in a really mindless way and kind of shop for love the way we shop for shoes, there's consequences to that. I think it means that we go into our romantic relationships with much more of a consumer attitude like this one. Well, this one doesn't really suit my needs or, you know, this one's not pretty enough or this one's not da 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 enough versus um, going into like really treating love for what it is, which is this vastly mysterious complex, sacred journey, you know, so that, so that if we use the tool in order to get to a first date, we've got to show up for that first date, really respecting the kind of sacredness of what it means for two potential partners to meet in a space and time to kind of ask the question, like, who are you going to be to me? And what could we, what, what's possible for us to create here? But I think what the tools do, I think we can use the tools to try to manage our anxiety and our fear about it. And there's so much anxiety and fear in dating. There's, you know, very little, I would say nothing in our, in our lives shakes us up and makes us as vulnerable as falling in love, right? It's a really vulnerable process. So I think we sometimes use these tools as a way of binding anxiety and trying to make it very strategic, very methodical in protecting ourselves. So I spend a lot of time talking about kind of how can we use these tools in a conscious way. One really easy one is to just refuse to allow ourselves to swipe, you know, while we're on the train or while we're in line at the grocery store, but to have kind of a time and a space of the day and to make the, make the search for love a ritual. You know, it happens at 6.30 PM on my back porch. I spend a little bit of time on it and then I put it away. Like they're making a ritual out of it is just a way of telling ourselves that this is something that's about human connection and it, and it deserves, it deserves a sense of care. And then I think being aligned, if, if what you want is just a sexual connection, being really aligned with that and, and upfront with it. Although I've heard yeah. so many stories of people who are just looking for a sexual connection and then, you know, fall in love and, um, get married. And so I think it's really hard going in to, to kind of, I think we can say, but it's, but the degree to which we can be honest about, listen, here's all I'm available for right now. Are you available? So that the contract we make is a co-created honest contract to the degree of our awareness. 
you know, versus saying, you know, we're up for one thing when really we're not. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's so interesting because I think, you know, what I've seen is the distinction a lot between, and what I've started to see, and this isn't, this isn't universal, but what I've started to see is a distinction between dating and relationships. And what I mean by that is that I see a lot of guys, um, and, and, you know, sometimes with women as well, where they'll use these apps or they'll use these, um, platforms as a means to date. But then when they want, a you know, a, a legitimate, like long-term relationship, that's not, they, they're going about it the same way as when they were dating and the mindset I find and the heart set is often very different. And so I've seen a lot of guys use those platforms to, to date and, you know, to meet up with women and to, to meet, you know, a bunch of women and just like go on these dates and have these experiences. But then when they actually want to develop a long-term relationship, they often look somewhere else. And so, you know, they get rid of the dating apps and they go out to, you know, uh, they go out to a, a Whole Foods, right? And, mm-hmm, <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and try and approach somebody because statistically, you know, grocery stores are the safest place to, to strike up a conversation, <laughs> which is, I think, hilarious. Yeah. But so it's funny that you mentioned Trader Joe's and I've mentioned Whole Foods. But uh, <laughs> so, so I, I think it's interesting that, that, you know, if we can be conscious to the impact that these platforms are having and how we're using them, I, th- I think you're right. Yeah. We're going to set up ourselves up for a, a different type of success. So, well, And this is, you know, this generation of, of people in the dating world is dealing with a, basically a problem that no generation has had before. Like the amount of time between sexual maturity and readiness to get married is a longer period of time. There are more years to fill than any generation. So what you're saying about the distinction between dating and relationship is a really legitimate one. And so to me, the key thing is, I think even when we're dating, we can be committed to leaving people better than we found them, mm. you know? Yeah, 100%. Even if we're dating. So the so again, the idea of integrity, of being honest about here's what I'm available for, here's what I'm not available for. I think it prevents everyone from getting jaded. You know, there's so much sort of, there's a risk of jadedness and cynicism that can set in, I think, from um, use of these apps and feeling like everyone's just kind of looking out for themselves and, the, you know, ghosting and being ghosted, I think, can leave people feeling real cynical. And I think it's on incumbent on all of us to be, up, you know, uplifting each other and treating each other with, with the care that we want to be treated with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, enough with those single people. Let's talk about some, let's talk about couples. Let's, let's dive into the, the juicy goodness of once you get in a relationship, what the hell do you do? Um, <laughs> cause I think, <laughs> I think this is like, you know, this is where the, not the, the real magic happens, but this is where, you know, a lot of people will get into a relationship and they'll be confronted by, you know, their themselves and their growth and a lot of the pieces of themselves that, you know, maybe weren't present before when they were just dating. So, so let's talk relationships. What are some of the, what are some of the the common themes that you see, you know, between men and women where, where they struggle from a sense of communication and connection? I think that those two pieces I'd like to start there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I think for as much, for as much as I value self-work as something that kind of lays the groundwork for intimate relationship, it's also the case that there that being in love and creating a relationship with somebody forces us into a confrontation with self that we just can't otherwise have. So it's like the arrow goes in both directions. You know, it's really helpful to grow yourself and know yourself in order to create a healthy relationship. But then the truth is that the healthy relationship, the relationship grows you and kicks your butt and pushes you into deeper levels of evolution as well, you know? So it's not like we can like 
be all done and then go into the relationship. And if we've done our work, it's going to be easy, breezy and smooth sailing because, you know, the process of loving somebody and building a life with somebody also just forces us into new levels of self-awareness. I've been married to my husband for almost 19 years and we had a we had our weekly Sunday morning, we're late for synagogue <laughs> fight last weekend. And in that little fight, I, like another piece fell in place, you know, about me, about the way in which that fight triggers me, how I need to be an advocate for myself while also an ally to him. It was like another piece fell in place. I'm like, we've had this, fight. <laughs> we've gone round and round about this for years. And like, ah, I get it again. It was such a reminder of how how a romantic relationship is a crucible for growth, you know, year after year after year, all the way into like year 19 of a marriage, you can still be learning shit about yourself and each other. So yeah, the, the barriers to communication between men and women, for sure. That is, you know, when a couple calls, when a partner calls me and wants uh, to do individual therapy, nine times out of 10, when I say, what is, you know, what are you guys looking to work on? What they say is communication. But I also know that when someone tells me that they've got communication problems, I really don't know a thing about what, what the problem really is. You know, communication problems becomes this big bucket into which we put everything from sexual stuff to, you know, yelling and screaming to um, retreating from each other for days on end. So the ways in which we do these dances of connection and conflict and connection and conflict is really, that's the heart of every romantic relationship is understanding the me, the you, and then the we, you know, like we come in, I come in with my stuff, you come in with your stuff, and then together we create stuff. So that's always the, the formula that, um, I, that I'm helping people unpack, develop an awareness of, and figure out how they're going to, okay, how are you going to work with it? Here's your stuff. Here's your stuff. And then here's what you guys create together. Let's figure out how you work with all that. Nice. I, I, lo I love that because I think that sometimes we go into a dynamic or go into a relationship and it's so easy to just see the stuff in the we part as their, their stuff. Oh yeah. <laughs> you know? uh -huh. And, and it's, it's, I think the, the, the work is, is identifying the parts, you know, where we're actually contributing to, to conflict within the relationship. So, so what are some, what are some best practices that you would recommend to couples or, you know, if the, the one part of the couple that might be listening to this, what would you recommend that people do in order to keep, you know, healthy levels of communication or, or develop a deeper level of communication? Because I think you're right. The communication piece is something that I hear so many people say, you know, our relationship is great because of communication or our relationship is falling apart because we can't seem to communicate properly. So how do you bridge the gap? Um, you know, what are, what are some best practices and, and tools that people can use in order to either get on the same page or maintain that healthy level of communication? Yeah. Well, to me, the most, to me, the most important thing, and this is, I talk with my, so I train graduate students to become couples therapists. And I think one of the things that we come back to over and over and over again is helping people understand the difference between a primary emotion and a secondary emotion. So by and large, we have our secondary emotions, our um, anger, blame, finger pointing, all the ways in which we get, like you're saying, hyper-focused on what the other guy is doing. That story of like, this relationship would all be well and good if he would just, da, 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 if she would just, da, da. So the conflict 
most often becomes kind of finger cross, you know, each, each person pointing fingers at the other person, like you change that, you change that, you know, and that's the secondary emotions are kind of the ways that we push the bad feelings off of ourselves and feel like the other person is annoying, disturbing, disappointing, not measuring up. So what is so courageous and helpful is to begin to recognize, to begin to use that secondary emotion, that anger, that irritation as a little red flag of like, huh, I wonder what's going on inside of me. What, what about this has me so triggered? And then wondering about the primary emotion, the more vulnerable emotion that is always a hundred times out of a hundred hanging out behind and beneath the secondary emotion right behind and beneath the anger, the irritation is something about me, something tender and vulnerable about me. You know, when, when you tell me you're going to text me and you don't text me, I feel angry. Okay. So anger is like layer one, but four layers under that is the deep truth that when you don't text me, when you say you're going to, it stirs in me a fear of abandonment that, you know, has been with me since I was three and my dad walked out. Can I be honest about that? And can I have compassion for the wounded kid that still lives in me and frankly still lives in every single one of us? Have compassion for that part of me and let you know that. Yeah. And let you know. Yeah, you kind of, I was going to say, you kind of like just hit home there. Like that was exactly, (laughs) I feel like, I feel like, you know, exactly like, Literally, that's exactly my story. That's kind of that's kind of hilarious. It's like I'm listening, I'm listening to you, and I was like, oh yeah, I've I've done that. Like oh yeah, when you don't text me back, like I'm angry, and it's just like oh yeah, the abandonment part. And then you're like, when my dad walked out when I was three, and I was like, that's exactly what's happened to me. That's what happened <laughs> um, to me too. That's, that's kind of that's kind of funny. Um, yeah. No, I I think I think you've hit like a really valuable point because you know as a as a guy, one of the things that I've really you know, in the past, I really struggled with. And what I work with a lot of men on now is like, how do we move past that layer of this is just about me being angry, Mm -hmm. right? Because I think that within the sort of like masculine archetype and how we perceive masculinity, it's just kind of like, well, if I'm upset, it's usually it's usually we go straight to anger, right? Mm -hmm. And, and we usually don't go much deeper than that. And so I think that there's there's a bit of there's kind of a catch 22, right? Because in a relationship, we, as, as men want to seem like we have it all together. We want to seem like we're strong and and solid and grounded. And so there's a perception from a lot of the men that are in the community sometimes that, that, you know, there's things past anger, like that part, the part of us, when we are going to identify it and say, oh, you know, like when this happens, it actually like triggers this you know, childhood wounded me or this shame or this grief or whatever the case may be. And there's this perception that when we share that we're less of a man. Mm -hmm. So how do we move past that? Like, how do we, what would you recommend for the guys that are out there who usually go into the anger piece and know that it's something deeper, but don't know how to communicate that deeper piece to their partner because they're afraid that, you know, either it's going to make them not as good of a partner or it's going to spoil the connection or, or whatever. Like what, how do you, how do you kind of address that? Yeah. Well, this is where I feel bad for everybody who doesn't get to do what I get to do because I get to watch this happen in my office over and over and over again. And I never, it never, um, it never grows tiring or predictable to me. Like I get chills and tears fill my eyes every single time I watch a man step 
from anger to the tender stuff that hides behind anger and give voice to the three-year-old boy or the wound that kind of was the, the root of all of this, when he steps into that vulnerable place, it is so courageous. It is so brave. There's nothing, even just talking about it, like I feel chills. Like there's nothing more courageous to me and more manly, masculine to me than the ability to stand courageously in vulnerability. And almost always she meets him there because we've done, we've laid the groundwork and watching her then lean towards him and be supportive and say, you're so strong when you can, you know, be with me in this way is amazing. So I, what I, what has been my overwhelming experience is when men step into their vulnerability, their female partners are grateful, beyond grateful. Um, for that kind of access, because what it feels to her like is that he's opened a door and he's let her in a little closer, you know, to his bones. And, and most of the women I have worked with have, have been able to meet that moment for what it is. Like they get how much courage it takes for a man who's been told for years, don't cry, don't be a wuss, da, 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 you know, real boys don't all this kind of bullshit that men are fed when she watches him kind of shed that, she's right there. And if she's not, if a female partner can't meet a man in that vulnerability, he's got some powerful data then about, mm. about either about her wounds or about her, you know, uh, maybe she may not be the best partner for him, right? If she can't uh, treat vulnerability with the respect it deserves, she may not be his, his best partner, right? If he's ready to make that kind of shift and live in that more empowered way. And he's not partnered with somebody who can respect that. That's to me, a pretty big relational red flag. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, it's huge. And I think, you know, it's, it's funny because what you're talking about now, it, it kind of circles back to what we were talking about before, which, which was about like owning your truth, right. And, and, st you know, standing in that and being able to, to say, cause I think, you know, what trips, what I see trip, trip a lot of guys up is that there's, there's shame around those deeper parts. Right. And so when they want to bring that into, you know, a relationship and maybe say those pieces, whether it's, you know, when this happens, this is how I feel. There's, there's sometimes shame that they feel that way. And, and that's like the block that they, that they need to overcome or integrate so that, so that they can communicate those pieces with their partner. And, and I, I really like the part where you said, you know, the, the result that you're going to get out of that, it's going to be really valuable data for, for your partner. Cause I think that's a, it's, it's something that we're often looking for as men, like, it, you know, is it okay to, to share these pieces? Is this something that I want in this relationship? And and, and that's, that's absolutely huge. Yes. So mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. So thanks for that. Mm -hmm. Um, let's talk a little bit about intimacy and then jump into your book. Cause you've just released a, a really, really great book that I definitely want to, that I want to talk about, but first I kind of want to get your opinion on intimacy within relationships and, you know, how our listeners can cultivate a deeper sense of intimacy, whether that's, you know, emotionally, mentally, or, or physically with their partners. So what are some, what are some like not best practices, but think some things that you, that you see as an opportunity for people to cultivate within the relationship? Yeah. Um, so it, it, it's, a, it's a really small question. It's, it's not at all. <laughs> it's, a really small, it's, it's not a massive, like, we have a whole podcast about this. And I, and I understand that it's a really big topic because intimacy is, 
you know, it's a big thing. Mm -hmm. Um, but I'm just wondering if you can, if you can touch on some of the really important parts. Yeah. Well, okay. So here, so when you, right, when you bring up intimacy, one of the places that I go is one of the real common dances I see in my office with my heterosexual couples is this. They, they, most of my couples, when they come in to see me, they, they aren't having sex or they haven't had sex for a long time. So sexual intimacy isn't really part of the equation. And what she is saying is, are you kidding me? I can't even imagine being sexual with you until I feel more partnered with, right? I don't feel like you're there for me. I don't feel like you have my back. How can I go to bed with you? And what he says is, it's really hard for me to feel close to you when we aren't being physical. Like without that sexual connection, I don't feel partnered with you. I don't feel connected to you. So it ends up being this like sort of standoff, you know, and I think women especially come into couples therapy feeling like it's going to be the therapist and her fixing him. So the first few sessions um, tend to be rather disorienting for the women in my practice when that's not going to be how it goes, you know, (laughs) because women have been raised on uh, Barbie dolls and fairy tales and kind of have been told their whole lives that they are the arbiters of all things intimacy and their definition is the end all be all. It gets taken up when, when I kind of challenge that. I think that those two things go hand in hand, sexual intimacy and emotional intimacy go hand in hand. And so I am, for as much as I'm on him, trying to help him find ways he can reach for her, show her that he's there. I'm also on her, working with her on what are some ways you guys could reestablish touch? What would be some ways you could imagine touching and being touched? Because we're angry, because we, we, touch, we, we stop touching because we're angry, but we also are angry because we stop touching. Like the heart of the matter is that we're you know, we're mammals and we, and touch is a part of how we regulate ourselves and connect to others. And so without touch, it is really hard to feel intimate and close. So it is a big old both and, but one that I think women especially think we have to be really, really emotionally close and I have to feel really, really, really safe with you. And I have to totally know you're here for me before we can touch. And so I'm always on her. How can we start to shake up that story a little bit in ways where you both are being asked to kind of stretch. Yeah. I like that because I've seen that quite a bit where the man and the woman are, are both struggling and both kind of like stubborn in standing their ground. And you know, the woman saying, I want you to connect with me more emotionally. Like, I feel like you're not connecting with me emotionally. And, and the guy's saying, okay, well, I mean, I, I'll figure out, you know, I'm trying to figure out how to do that, but I don't feel connected to you physically and neither are kind of like willing to take a step onto the bridge, you know, Mm -hmm. which is, which is, you know, from the man's side, sometimes we need to open up a little bit more and understand what that means, which often, you know, means listening or, or being a little bit more emotionally expressive. Mm -hmm. And from the, from the woman's side, moving closer from, from a physical standpoint. So it's kind of an interesting thing. So when you see that, do you just recommend that both people lean in a little bit and, and if so, you know, if, if there's listeners that are out there that, you know, I'm, sh- I'm sure that there's a lot of guys out there right now that have, that have heard this in their relationship, um, what would you recommend? Like, what's something easy or simple that they can do to kind of bridge that gap for, for their relationship? Well, one of the ways that he can lean in, because I think it's so easy for her story to be, you only want me for sex. You know, mm-hmm. I think it can be this, I- this idea that she, the message that she gets is that you just, that it feels very much like a, like a sort of transaction that he's, what he's, what she hears him saying is he wants to get something from her. 
And so I think the degree to which he can be honest and vulnerable about what sex means to him, you know, I, whatever it is, I love to give you pleasure. I love how you feel in my arms. I love like the ways in which he can convey the kind of vulnerability that stirs in him when he's sexual with her, I think really challenges and shakes up her story that he just is trying to get something from me. He's just, it's more demand. It's more demand. It's just trying to get something from me with the way he could, if he can express kind of what, why sex is such a powerful communication tool and, and ways in which it helps him feel emotionally open and connected and safe. Um, I think that will help, that will help her kind of challenge Mm -hmm. that real thin story, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I like that because it's like you're using, not using, but you're allowing the thing which you want to be the conduit for the vulnerability that she's also looking for. Totally. Mm-hmm. Right. And, mm-hmm. and like allowing that part to be the bridge itself, which is really, really powerful. So in that way, it's what they both want, right? That's what they both, that's what they both want. They both want to feel close. And so how, if he can express, here's how sex makes me feel close to you, you know, here mm-hmm. are the ways that it really gets, it gets us actually to the same end point that we both want to feel. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. So, so let's kind of let's kind of segue because a lot of the things that we've talked about, you know, whether it's the single life or within the relationship dynamic between between you know within the within the couple, a lot of what we're talking about and a lot of what you've expressed is is loving bravely, which which is the title of your book. And um, so I'm wondering if you can unpack that a little bit for us. You know, a why did you write the book, and and b what are you hoping that people will get out of reading this and, and why loving bravely? Maybe let's just start there. Why loving bravely? (laughs) I, yeah, that title, it was an interesting journey. You know, I, I feel like uh, my husband and I named our children really easily. We named our dog really easily, but naming this book was a whole (laughs) journey unto itself, but loving bravely, it just really captures the whole heart of the book, which is the courage it takes to do the first thing that readers are asked to do in the book is is get real honest about the fact that the way that we were raised is present with us in our romantic relationships. And that just, it takes guts to, to say that and to sit with it. And it doesn't mean that anybody is damaged or broken beyond repair. You know, even if they had a pretty lousy childhood, it does not mean that at all, but it does mean that we've, we've got to be honest about the ways that all the messages we receive as kids and all the experiences we have early in our lives really shape kind of what, what we come into relationship with. Um, so there's courage in that there's courage in looking at how we regulate our emotions and how we handle our feelings. And if we're the, are you the kind of person who's prone to going off and getting loud and shifting into blame? Are you the kind of person who retreats into shame when you're upset, getting real honest about kind of what's your relationship like with your emotional world? It takes guts. I mean, that's brave. It's so much easier to kind of just get stuck in a place of blame and externalizing or feeling down on yourself chronically. And, you know, so it just the whole, the whole process of looking at who we are and understanding who we are so that we can be as healthy as possible in our romantic relationships. That takes guts. I think it's much easier to pick up a, um, one of the many dating self-help books that are out there that are about rules, you know, where you just take a set of rules, don't do this, don't do this, do this, do this, and try to apply those rules. Those books, I think sell really well. And they are, um, and there's an appeal and this idea that somebody else can just tell me what to do. If I do a, B and C, it's all going to be okay. 
And I think what I'm encouraging is a, is pretty, um, it's revolutionary, it's different, and it takes a lot of guts to say, okay, so if I want to find a great partner, let me work on being a great partner. That takes, I think that's it's one of the more courageous things that I have had the opportunity to watch people do and help people do. So it's almost more like a, 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 a journey of self-reflection to understand how we show up in the relationship dynamic versus, and I, I love what you said, because it's, it's so true. There are so many books out there and it's a very masculine thing, right? Like we often approach issues or, or challenges or conflict within our relationship from the space of how can I fix this? Mm -hmm. So it would make sense that a lot of the books out there are built to kind of give us that like quick fix or, you know, the, <laughs> the, the Ikea furniture building, uh, manuscript, you know, mm -hmm. like this is how you, this is how you build it. This is how you make it work. Um, which some of us don't read at all. Uh, <laughs> and, the, and the furniture is completely messed up. But anyway, um, so it's, it's interesting that you say that because it's, I think it's one of those things where as men, especially we often look for what's just like the one or two things I can just do and the relationship will be good, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And I saw this, I saw this great quote, um, the other day, I can't remember, I can't remember who it was, but they were basically saying it was a famous entrepreneur. And they were basically saying, if you put as much time and effort and energy into your relationship as you put into your business, you would have a love far beyond what you've ever expected. Mm. And, and it's this idea that, you know, for a lot of the guys that I talk to, their relationship is just as important as their success you know, mm -hmm. and yet we seem to get into a relationship and then, you know, it gets a year or two in and it just doesn't get the sort of attention that it needs in order to thrive and flourish. Mm -hmm. And so for the professional guy that's out there, that's, you know, he's, he's hustling, he's working 60 hours a week. Maybe there's a kid involved in the, in the, in the marriage or the relationship. What can he do? Not like the simple like step of, okay, you know, take her out for a date once a week. Um, but what can he do to like really have his partner feel connected on a, on a consistent basis? Cause I think this is something that a lot of guys struggle with is that they're really focused in on, on providing for their family mm -hmm. and building their career and, and, and building, you know, whatever they are doing in the world. But at the same time, their relationship is so important to them and it's easy to fall in the trap of feeling like they're failing. Mm -hmm. So how can they show up? you know, in this, in the, in the week when they have to work 50 to 70 hours a week, um, and still have their partner feeling connected. Yeah. I think that, I think that's a really, it's such an important question that you're asking. And I do, I think there's a way also that when men especially start to feel like their partner is disappointed in them, or they feel like they're not measuring up, men are prone to doing all kinds of stuff to soothe that feeling. It's a pretty, it's a very, uh, painful feeling. It's very painful to feel like you are a disappointment, especially if you're somebody like you're saying who's working so hard, trying so hard to be successful to get the message at home that you aren't doing enough. You aren't measuring up. You're falling short is so acutely painful. And so I see men who do all, who fill that wound, that painful spot with pretty unhealthy behaviors, you know, too much alcohol, too much porn, turning away from their partner. It, it can take on a life of its own. So I think the first thing is just being being able to be honest about the pain that comes when you feel like you're not enough or not measuring up. And I think when men are able to tell their partners, I really want to measure up for you. I really want, you know, to shine in your eyes. I tell, when I talk to audiences of all women, I tell them like, you guys, 
I get to know husbands so intimately and personally. And what I have seen time and time again is the depth at which men define themselves based on how their wives are perceiving them and how they feel like they are reflected on their wives' faces. It's just so important and so essential. So I think that for men to be honest with themselves, like that your perception of me matters so deeply and to let their partner know that I think is a really big first step, just being honest about that. Because I think when we're not honest about it, it leads to all kinds of acting out behavior, you know, and having a boundary. So I think with one of the aspects of technology is that really for any of us, we could be working around the clock, you know, so finding ways, especially when um, families have young kids to just put up a boundary and say, okay, at this time, my phone is going to go over here. It's going to charge. I'm going to walk away from it and just um, put some time in with you and, and be present with you. And that's, that is, I think, harder and harder to do, but it's real important to have that boundary with work and know that work's going to be there again tomorrow. Yeah. I like that because it's, it's one of those things where I think a lot of guys will, I feel like a lot of guys will resonate with what you just said because relationships are important and how our partner perceives us is very important. And I know for myself in the past and, and with, you know, other men that I've worked with, they can often get into a space where if they feel like they're failing with their partner, that's when, you know, the drinking increases or the, you know, the working, the longer hours increases, Mm -hmm. or they turn to other things, right? Like infidelity and cheating, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. And a friend of mine, I spoke at uh, TEDx last year and there was a, a sex therapist there that spoke, um, Dr. Maureen, I can't remember her last name. I'll have to put it in the show notes, but she said, you know, men cheat to stay in a relationship and women cheat to leave. Yeah. And, and when she unpacked it, she basically said, you know, guys start to look elsewhere when they feel like either A, their needs aren't being met or B, they feel like they're constantly failing with their partner and, and can't seem to fix it. And if they feel like a failure to their partner, then they kind of lose hope, but they still stay there, right? Mm-hmm. Because they, they, they're committed to it. And that's kind of the mm-hmm. funny thing is that men, once the, once we're in there, like most of the time, like we're, we're pretty in, totally. you know, uh-huh. and, and we, and we want to succeed. And, and the funny thing is I, I always say like at our events, I always say, you know, ladies, I'm going to let you in on a secret. No man wants to fail in your relationship. No, I, if he's, I, if he's with you, mm-hmm. he's with you for a reason mm-hmm. and he doesn't want to fail. Like this is the last thing that he wants to do. Yeah. And so I love the piece that you said about identifying that and saying, Hey, being successful in this dynamic is actually really important to me mm-hmm. and and actually identifying that. Cause I think a lot of times guys will, will leave that unsaid, you know? And so I think that's a hugely important piece. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And I am, I mean, I feel like it's so much of my, so for, I was going to say in relation to that, I can't even tell you the last time a woman called me for couples therapy. It is almost always the men who are calling me for couples therapy. And my longest term, you know, I look at sort of the individuals I do therapy with, it's almost all men. I mean, I've got men who I do therapy with for a really long time. And so I I think that's, that is such a true thing that you're saying is that men really, really want to be successful and they want to be pleasing um, to their partner. So a lot of, I spend a lot of time helping women be aware that, you know, that eye roll that you just gave him, that eye roll is at, you know, it takes a little chink out of the armor. It is a, uh, it's a little soul crushing. It takes, it erodes, it erodes connection. And from where she sits, she can't get it because her own story is so big and so loud inside of her that she loses awareness that her eye roll or her little one-off comment has such a powerful impact on him. So I'm, 
I, a lot of what I do is help women be mindful of that, be aware of that because they can. It's so good. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's so good. So, so basically the, you know, I, I think it's important because I have this saying, which is you can either be right or you can be happy. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think the, the context of that is so powerful because it's, sometimes it's not just about either we can be right or we can be happy. Um, but you know, for our partners, it's like, you can either be right, you know, you can either be right about your, your story that you have, which isn't leaving you feeling happy. Like the story that you have about me not wanting to provide in this relationship mm-hmm. or be successful in this relationship or give you time, mm-hmm. or you can be happy. You can look at your narrative, look at your story and start to shift that to meet me in the reality of, of where I actually want to show up in this dynamic. So I think that that's powerful. Mm-hmm. One other piece, I just, I'm going to, I'm going to open this to you with your book. What's, what's one thing that you would like to leave people with? What's, what's something that you would like them to take away, you know, for the listeners that are out there that, that might check it out. Um, what are you hoping that they'll get out of it? Yeah. Well, my big hope is that what people will get out of it is a paradigm shift that helps them start to view romantic relationships, not as something to be solved or fixed or mastered, but something that gives us the opportunity again and again to grow more strong, more courageous, more resilient, more whole. And so the, the intention of the book is to help people feel better able to sit with the complexity that love is always going to show up with. We're never going to be able to get love to behave. Love's not going to behave. It's not going to be obey a set of rules. It's not going to ever be nice and neat and tidy. So it's incumbent upon us to do our work so that we are as strong as we can be and be able to kind of like dance with and move with and flow with all of that complexity rather than taming love or getting love to cooperate with what we want. It's never going to do that. So all we can do is be as strong and whole as we can be and create relationships that are fierce and strong and powerful and able to kind of like sit with all of what couples have to sit with, you know, in order to be happy and successful and love. I love it. I love it. So good. Well, usually, usually we ask rapid fire questions at the end, but, um, you know, I felt like our conversation and what you were providing and the, the, the information, the wisdom was just so powerful that we, I just kept going. And so we don't, so we don't have time for the rapid fire, unfortunately, but I feel like those last pieces that, that you shared with us are really, really powerful. So thank you so, so much for, for being with us today. And if you want to learn more, or if the listeners want to learn more, where can they find you? Where's the best avenue to, to get in touch? with? Sure, I'm on Instagram, dr.alexandra.solomon. And my website is dralexandrasolomon.com. Um, those are a couple of great places to find me. Awesome. So we'll include those as well in the show notes. If you want to check her out, uh, check out the book, cause it sounds like it's going to be a pretty awesome one, especially around love and relationships and intimacy. Uh, and to learn more about man talks, go to mantalks.com for more podcasts, blog posts, and videos from our events, um, which are live. Uh, you can subscribe to us on iTunes. So you never miss an episode and please leave us a rating. It goes a long, long way to getting this podcast into the ears of other people. Feel free to share it and help us man it forward. Thank you so much for listening to the Man Talks podcast. Catch us next week for another inspiring conversation with another inspiring person.